Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from the studios of United Stations on a special edition, as I said, on aviation safety and security, a topic near and dear to me and many of you, and talking about everything from terrorism to maintenance, uh, and what's being done, what isn't being done, how safe are we, how safe can we be, and some surprising statistics that I think might... uh, might change the way you think about all these things. Got a travel question or comment? Need advice? Jump on board now by calling the show at 1-888-88-PETER. That's 1-888-887-3837. Once again, here's your host, Peter Greenberg. 18 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you on this special on aviation safety. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. If you can't get through on the phones, we welcome your emails to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, and question, and we will try to deal with it on the air. Uh, Joining me now, a regular on our show, the author of Cockpit Confidential, a commercial airline pilot. And I can honestly say an expert on air safety. We talk to Patrick all the time, even when there isn't an incident, to give us the proper perspective. Patrick Smith, how are you, sir? Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me back. You know, this is a great topic uh, because I think people 
at this point have a very, uh, how to put it exactly, a sensationalized uh, interpretation of, of air safety right now due to uh, certain incidents over the past uh, year or two that have gotten just tremendous amounts of media attention. Well, let's put this in perspective because for a period of almost 13 years, we've had a remarkably great period of accident-free environment when it comes to, mm. to commercial aviation, uh, something that we've never had prior to that. I mean, it, the, the numbers are, are quite remarkable. And yet I go back to my days at, at Newsweek in the, in the 1970s uh, covering horrendous cases uh, all over the world, and of course uh, the worst aviation disaster in American history, which still ranks as that, uh, American Airlines Flight 191 in uh, May 25th, 1979 in Chicago. I now, the I day have, that happened. Oh, I, now I remember exactly where I was, and I, I lost friends on that plane. Wow. Um, and I remember the investigation, which was just quite so fascinating, and, and, and how it, in a sense, indirectly led to the end of McDonnell Douglas. Uh, but we can talk about that in its context and in its time period. But I think, you know, one of the things we need to talk about now, because, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I got on a plane four years ago, nobody said be safe uh, because there were no incidents uh, of, of any, subs uh, any substance uh, or any resonance, really. Uh, I get on a plane now and people are going, well, be careful. And I'm going, wait a second. Every day in the world... There is something like, and I may be wrong by a few thousand, but something like 97,000 flights. Um, and they take off, and guess what? They land, and nothing happens. You, you cannot, I mean, you know, we, we've all heard the thing that you're safer in a plane than you are driving on the freeway. Well, that's true. Um, and yet, I think we can talk about how far we've come since those 1970 days of so many different accidents all over the world to where we are today and realize that th the improvements really have been made. They haven't been made in rail safety, I can tell you that. They haven't been made as much in highway safety uh, or bus safety. You know, name the, name the buses that are mandatorily, uh, that have mandatory seatbelts. Right. You know, it, 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 right? But, and yet, it's, it's, it's a sexy topic, if you will, it gets all the play, and I, I suppose one of the reasons, Patrick, and then I'll let you talk, is because, you know, it's the one form of transportation where we feel we're not in control. Sure, and, and every person is on some level afraid to fly. So in some respects, uh, you know, this, this anxiety and apprehension that's out there is, is explainable, and it's, it's rational. Um, but let's give people some context. Let me ask you, Peter. You, you, you give me the answer to this question. When was the last... I guess what we would call major crash, like a big plane crash involving a major U.S. airline. Well, the biggest plane crash, uh, uh, well, major crash? I mean, the I can last, think of an American. The last catastrophic air disaster okay. involving a, a mainline U.S. airline. Okay, catastrophic meaning loss of life? Yeah, like a, like a, a, a big old plane crash, like the kind we used to see all the time. But, but involving an American major carrier. I'll just give you the I answer. Can think it, of, was, uh, it was November of 2001. I know, American, American Airlines. American Airlines disaster outside in Rockaway. Airport and then Rockaway in November 2001. I yeah, mean, November 11th, by the way. how long ago that, that, that was. I mean, that is absolutely astonishing. And, and as you alluded to a minute ago, go back to the 1970s, the 1980s, when we would have major accidents, not just nationwide, but worldwide, uh, on the order of, you know, a dozen or more every single year. 
And the year that I like to focus on as an example is, is 1985. Uh, that was the year in which I believe the number was 26. There were 26 major air disasters around the world that killed almost 2,500 people. And that included, get this, two of the 10 worst air disasters of all time that happened within 60 days of each other. Now, imagine that today and just how absolutely uh, unrelenting the, the, the media focus would be. And, and, and that's the key to why there's this idea nowadays, this notion out there that, that flying is, is more dangerous or, or, or at least less safe than it has been in recent years. And, and go back to last year, the Malaysia Airlines incidents and so on. There was just so much media hype and so much 24-7 coverage that I think just, just leads to that mindset, which, which is unfortunate and, and ironic because air safety or air travel has never really been, never been safer than it is right now. Well, let me go back to those incidents because they all happen to be concentrated in one region of the world, right? You had Malaysian Airlines 370, you had the second Malaysian Airlines flight, you had an AirAsia flight, you had a flight in Taiwan that hit the bridge. Um, and it, it called into question, you know, all the airline training, pilot training, safety protocols, uh, pilot shortages perhaps, putting people in the cockpit before they were ready. Um, and, you know, you and I both know that if you take a look at certain parts of the world where you're seeing an explosive growth of not only just mainline airlines but new airlines, um, where's, the, you know, where's the oversight there? You, you know, because we can really separate out between – the protocols in the U.S., and you fly for a U.S. carrier, um, and the protocols overseas, to the extent that even if you look at the European Union, they have a ban. They have a list of airlines they won't even let fly into their airspace and land at their airports. Which well, that, is that's, quite that's a, true. That's true, Peter. But the EU blacklist, as it's called, and this is something I talk about in my book, is is uh, composed mostly of airlines that the average person wouldn't even think of as a commercial carrier. We're talking for right, like the entire, like tier. the entire, the right, like the entire airline from, from right. the Congo and things like that. Not right. airlines as we as we know of them. So you have to be careful there. Meanwhile, to your point about Asia versus the rest of the world, Asia is now the the biggest and busiest air travel air travel market in the world, and the growth there has been tremendous and 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 fast. And there are issues there. But uh, going back to last year, you know, at least one and maybe two of those accidents you mentioned, um, you know, had nothing to do with, with, with the carrier's negligence. You had the shoot down of, of the Malaysia plane over Ukraine um, and, and the, the disappeared Malaysia Airlines 777. We just we don't know what happened there yet. So it's, it's kind of hard to put those in that same bucket. And, you know, it's, it's, it just as easily could have been uh, – Two or three airplanes in in Europe or North America that crashed last year. You, you have to look at it that way too. Exactly. But interestingly enough, going back to that EU list of, of banned airlines, you're right. Most of the airlines in that list are coming from the Congo um, or other you know other countries that we don't even they're not even on our radar most of the time. And yet, for a long period of time, I think virtually every airline in Indonesia was on that list. Yeah, I believe uh, Garuda, which is the Indonesian national carrier, was on that list for some time. But uh, actually, I know for a fact that they are off of that list because I was just in Amsterdam uh, at Schiphol Airport earlier this morning, and there was a, a Garuda a 777 parked at the gate right next to mine. 
well, then good for them. They 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 took them. They got themselves off the list. And I, th- so I think people the- should people should realize too, Peter, that that some of the the world's proudest and and in a lot of ways safest carriers come from areas you, you wouldn't expect. Um, you look at you know Ethiopian Airlines, for example, the oldest airline in Africa, uh, remarkably yeah. good safety record, uh, all things considered, where they fly and the sorts of infrastructure they deal with. Very safe, very professional, highly respected airline. And, and there are examples of carriers like that around the world. The list of carriers that have been fatality-free, and I have a whole list of these in my book, uh, for at least the past 30 years, really covers the entire globe. It's not just your, your North American and European carriers. By the way, you mentioned Ethiopian Airlines. It is a very safe airline. The only thing I've ever seen about them that was an accident, which they didn't do, was when they got hijacked off the Comoros Islands, I think. Uh, the most compelling video I've seen in a long time taken yep. by a honeymoon couple where the pilot got hit over the head with a battle axe and the plane went into the water. But right. bef- we're going to come back in a second, but I'll give you another one. You mentioned Ethiopian Airlines. I'll give you an airline that had the best safety record and was the oldest airline in North America, and then it went out of business. Mexicana, great safety record. Those guys never had a problem. And, uh, and yet people think, oh, who, why would you want to fly Mexicana? They're a good airline. Toto? We're not in Kansas anymore. Speaking with Patrick Smith, the author of Cockpit Confidential and a regular on our show. Patrick, we've got to ask the obvious question. You know, it's not easy to improve on a, on a batting average of 1,000. The real question is, how do you maintain it now? Yeah, great point. Um, and, you know, it's easy to say we're safer now than we ever have been and, uh, and all of that. But is it going to remain that way? Although, you know, 10, 15 years ago, certain people were predicting that by the time we were right where we are now, that that there there was going to be this plague of of, of accidents around the world, and you know, look uh, in China and India and, and Brazil and these other countries that where they were forecasting all this growth, that you know people were predicting there were there was going to be a crash every week, and and you know, oh my God, you know, we have to brace for this, and 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 it didn't happen. And um, you know, again, though, that that's not to say we should rest on our laurels. I mean, we we need to be proactive and preemptive. And and you know, look back at what got us here. Really, it was three things. I mean, first and foremost, it was it was training. It was crew training, uh, pilot training, the, the use of uh, what we call crew resource management, and all of that. Uh, secondly, it was improved technology and infrastructure. Uh, uh, newer, more sophisticated airplanes, better airports, better equipped runways, that sort of thing. And then thirdly, the thing nobody talks about and that people tend to be cynical about uh, is the, the collaborative efforts between airlines, uh, the, the, their uh, overseeing agencies, you know, in our, in our case, the FAA, uh, and, and such entities around the world, as well as the groups like pilot unions and, you know, people who each have a vested interest in being as safe as possible, all working together. And, and again, some people kind of roll their eyes and say, really, you know, the FAA and, and the airlines working <laughs> together to make us all safer? I don't think so. But really, I think I think the, the numbers bear out that, that, that that has been the case and that, that 
each of these entities and, and these groups have, in fact, worked well together. All right. Well, let me be the cynic here in this conversation and talk about our friends at the National Transportation Safety Board, who I think you will agree do a, a Herculean job uh, in the wake of disasters in terms of any kind, whether it's uh, trains, planes, or automobiles, uh, in investigating what happened, determining the probable cause, and then making, based on that information and what's available to them, uh, in many cases, urgent safety recommendations. And every year, they publish what they call their 10 most wanted list of urgent safety recommendations they've made to regulatory agencies like the Federal Aviation Administration that have not been acted on um, and have never been acted on. And you read that list and you go, wait a second. If you know what the problem is, you know what caused it, and most importantly, you know what the solution is, and that solution is available, then to make a conscious decision not to implement that solution would in some cases legally border on what we call a case of criminal negligence. Um, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, child safety seats on airplanes. Um, it, it is, it's been demonstrated without any, you know, equivocation whatsoever, without any, you know, measure of doubt that children under the age of two, wage, you know, weighing under 40 pounds need to be restrained in a rear-facing seat, which, by the way, is available on the market. And the FAA has refused to make them mandatory on airplanes, allowing parents to hold them in their laps. Well, I, I think and you know this, Peter. The, the thinking there is, well, who's going to supply these seats? If, if parents uh, don't have a seat, is the airline going to provide it? And sure. Ultimately, the thinking is that a given number of people are going to opt to drive rather than fly. Yes. Yes, but let me and, let me go one the, beyond the, that. The overall number of fatalities will in fact go up. So that's that's the yes, but but there. yes, but I but the FAA doesn't enforce the highway, and my uh, my response to that is when I want the FAA to talk about highway safety, I'll ask them. I mean, this is what they're supposed to do: airline safety, and their argument has always been, as you just said, that if the airlines provided the seats, they'd charge more than people who would otherwise fly would drive and be killed on the highway. Well, guess what? If they otherwise would drive and be killed on the highway, they'd be driving with those seats, too. Uh, presumably, though, probably not yeah. everybody. Um, you know, yeah, but I, I, you know I, the I point. I see your point, Peter, absolutely. And, and, and the NTSB is, is an outstanding organization. And the FAA, for its part, um, notwithstanding what I said a minute ago, is very slow-moving. Right. <laughs> By the way, have you, ever seen, have you ever seen the uh, book of Federal Aviation Regulations? The FARs, you bet. That will give you some idea of the kind of bureaucracy the, F the FAA is and, and why they move or don't move in the ways that they, they do and don't. That they're, they're glacial. They're, they're caught up in, in, in just insane amounts of, of bureaucratic, whatever you want to call it, minutia. Just, it's, it's hard to get them enacting. Let's just let's I know. It. But, um, you it know, goes when, back. When it goes back to an old. I think they. I think they I do know. a good job. A recent example would be the rather sweeping improvements that we saw a couple of years ago in uh, air crew um, duty and rest times. I mean, that yes. was a long time coming, but we finally got the changes, and I think they've been very helpful. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs?
Joining me now, one of our regulars on the show, and of course a regular on my public television show called The Travel Detective, the travel editor from the Wall Street Journal, Scott McCartney. Scott, you know, this is an area that we all cover. Uh, we all know the buzzwords. We all know the sensitivities. Uh, it's, an, it's an issue that doesn't go away. And yet, at the same time, if you're just running the numbers, and it's, it's almost a persistent theme on this show, you'd have to be impressed at the improved level, not just this year, but over the last 13 years, of aviation safety almost worldwide, but especially in the United States. Yeah, I think that's true. I was, I was actually visiting with a, with a doctor who um, is involved in studying aviation security um, for, for the medical field and, and what um, doctors can learn from the safety regimes that are in place in aviation. And it's interesting. They're saying the medical field is, is way behind. That aviation has done a very good job of, of not only improving safety, but um, year after year, every year saying, okay, now we've gotten to point zero zero whatever the accident rate is. Um, let's cut it in half again. Let's cut it in half again. Let's cut it in half again. And uh, and see if we can get as as close as possible. You're never going to get to zero, and and we certainly have seen that recently. Um, but uh, th- there there is a lot of um, brain power that goes into it, a lot of money that's spent on safety equipment, and and a lot of uh, innovation that has has made flying much safer than it was 10 years ago, much, much safer than it was 20, 30 years ago, and much, much, much safer than it was 40 years ago. You know, you make the comparison to the medical profession, and I think it's a good one, uh, and you're right. There's a lot of, of lessons they can learn from what the aviation community has done, especially when you've got, for example, an, a surgeon in an operating room. Um, it goes back to the days of the pilot being God. Um, we saw for years on a number of different airlines, a culture that ended up being fatal, where the co-pilot or the flight engineer felt they could not question a decision, a choice, or an action by the commanding pilot because they were not allowed to, because he, he was the all-knowing, all-being pilot. Well, the sa- now that's starting to change in a very positive way in the cockpit, where the co-pilot and the flight engineer not only feel they can, they feel they must if there's a question that they need to bring up to the captain about the operation of the plane, the same principle actually applies in, in the operating room where surgeons were never questioned by the, by, the, by the anesthesiologist or by the nurses or by the, the attending other physicians. Now that, start, that culture starting to change based on some of the th- things they've learned from what the airlines have done. That's absolutely right. It's a great example, and, and I think the, you know, one, of the, the, one of the perfect examples for this. Um, and this goes back a long way in aviation. The, the, the whole field of crew, what's called crew resource management um, really started with a United Airlines crash, um, I believe outside of uh, Portland, Oregon, um, where the, the flight engineer in those days, um, the guy uh, who among his duties was supposed to keep track of how much fuel was left in the plane, flight engineer knew they didn't have enough fuel to get to the airport, and he was afraid to tell the captain. Um, and the plane crashed as a result. And, and so, I remember. I remember the crash. It was a DC-8. Yes, that's exactly right. And and so and that really set set off the whole notion of we have to change the culture in the cockpit. Um, and and I think uh, I think very successfully that that has been changed. Now it still happens. There was an American Airlines MD-80 crash in in Little Rock where. 
the the first officer was flying with a Czech airman, and he was essentially afraid to um, tell the the captain next to him um, that he that he had lost sight of the runway and didn't think they should be making the landing. And he he testified at the NTSB hearing that that he said abort. Um, and the NTSB said uh, it was not audible on the on the uh, uh, the cockpit voice recorder. In other words, if he said it, he said it so meekly um, that that the microphone couldn't even hear it. Um, so it, it still happens, but in general, um, there's much better culture, much better sharing of information. I, I think one of the one of the key things for for medicine to, to learn is is um, that aviation has done a really good job of sharing information, even when it's um, not particularly pleasant information. But, uh, but airlines do, um, you know, they compete like crazy, but they do share a lot of information about safety. They do report, uh, pilots do have a, have a, um, a system of uh, immunity where they can report problems to, um, to the FAA. And, uh, and with inspectors in place and other things, there, there are a lot of checks and balances there that, that do keep people honest. You know, one of the other cases that I, I used to cover was the Avianca case uh, outside of JFK, mm-hmm. where they, once again, they were running out of fuel, and the captain, it was an ego thing. The captain just refused to declare a fuel emergency, uh, which, by the way, would have resulted in the air traffic controllers giving him a completely different vector, making him a priority landing, and getting him on the ground. And because of that, he literally ran out of fuel and, and crashed in Long Island. Yeah, and and it's a it's a great example. And I think there are still issues with, um, uh, you know, ca- the captain does have ultimate responsibility and, and ultimate control. But but captains get pressure from airlines to complete flights when when uh, you know storms or whatever conditions they may not feel comfortable doing it. Um, they feel like they they got to get there and, and get their itis is is a problem that uh, that every pilot, even private pilots, face. Um, there is pressure to uh, to get where you want to go, um, and you have to sometimes be strong and say, uh, you, you know what, I'm going to stay on the ground, that's better. Or in the Avianca case, uh, I'm going to swallow my pride and, uh, and declare an emergency. And, and there may be repercussions to, you know, the, uh, i got to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole with the company, why did you declare an emergency, and investigators and all that. Um, but if you, if you want to keep people safe, that's what you got to do. You know, you mentioned the get their itis. Let's not forget private aviation and the charter planes, where the client is always pressuring the pilot. I want to go skiing in Aspen. Get us in. You know, we have a we have a party to go to. We want to get here. We want to get there. I did a, a, a long piece for Town and Country about a year and a half ago about the rise in accidents among among you know flying privately on charters where the client was pushing, pushing, pushing the pilots to, to make questionable landings in weather situations that would normally call for a go-around or a, or a diversion. Yeah, it's, it, it truly is a real problem. Um, uh, if you are you know, sitting next to a paying, small child or someone who is and, acting uh, like a small child, a please do us all a favor and put uh, on your mask first. They do become part of 
the safety team, if you will. And if I were doing it, the first thing I would say to the, to the captain is, uh, you're in control, and I don't want you doing anything that you're uncomfortable doing um, because, you know, I want to get there. I don't care about the party. I want to see next Tuesday. <laughs> How about tomorrow? How about yeah. just tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's the, 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 uh, the $64,000 question, and I'm asking this of all my guests. We know that we're living in a much improved aviation safety environment. That's not arguable. It's, it's a fact. Uh, it's also arguable that we may not be able to improve on that percentage, but the real question is how do we maintain it? And so what steps do you think need to be taken to at least keep that safety record at its current level? Uh, I think there's a lot of technology that, um, and there's been some resistance to this in aviation, but there's a lot of technology that can be deployed into into the cockpit that can improve safety. Um, I, it, is, it is possible for... Um, planes to be configured so that somebody on the ground could take control of the plane. So if you have a, a rogue pilot or a terrorist situation or, or whatever it might be, um, there can be an override, and somebody on the ground can, uh, can land that plane safely. Um, I think we need to do more in um, aircraft tracking. Um, that's uh, obviously Scott I, want, of- Scott, I want you to hold that thought because when we come back, let's talk about Malaysian 370, Let's talk about the technology that would allow people to at least know where the plane is, not to mention letting the pilot know where he is if the technology on board the way it's currently constructed fails. We'll be back right after this with more from Scott McCartney in the Wall Street Journal as our aviation special continues. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. We've been speaking with Scott McCartney, the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, and we just left us off with, with Scott. We were talking about how technology can help, at least if not improve it, but certainly maintain uh, an excellent safety record. And one of the things Scott was talking about was how do you develop a system where the technology is now available to be able to have somebody on the ground take control of a plane when there's, a, when there's an issue. And then second of all, how do you improve tracking when you consider how much of the world's surface is sort of a no-man's land in terms of coverage by satellites or tracking systems? Yeah, and, and there's, there's a lot of work moving forward on deploying more satellites um, in the blind spots uh, so that you can have um, satellite communications with airplanes um, almost anywhere. Um, and, and it's important for several reasons. It's important for um, air traffic controllers to be able to communicate better so they can separate aircraft better. Um, we have huge separation between aircraft across oceans in some parts of the world um, because uh, they're basically radioing in their position. We don't have accurate information. 
So what we do is uh, spread them out 100 miles, um, and you could you could do a lot to really improve flying for passengers if you could uh, if you could um, space them closer together. Um, even over Hudson Bay, up by the in Canada, um, there's been a lot of work that uh, has recently enabled more direct routing of aircraft, um, more comfortable altitudes when there's turbulence, things like that. So, so one of the other advantages of this technology is to um, have the aircraft in constant communication with the satellite reporting its position, uh, so you know where it is. And and I think we, you know, we've seen several accidents um, where. Uh, there are extensive search and rescue efforts, and it takes days, and it's uh, it's just not good. Uh, there's a, you know, always a chance that there are survivors out there that need to be found quickly. Um, and in the case of a, losing a triple seven like Malaysia 370, um, it's, uh, it's it's mind-boggling to many people today when uh, you know you're, you're <laughs> we can find my iPhone anywhere, but we can't find a triple seven somewhere. Well, I can't rent a car from Hertz without them knowing if I went through the toll booth or not. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's um, uh, it, it, there is a simple fix here, and, uh, and and airlines and the aviation community is starting to to get on board. And I do think it makes a difference. Um, it, it, the other thing you can do with with technology is um, you can you can program in planes, and we already do this w- with um, with some um, ground based stuff. You can program them to not fly into mountains, to not fly places that you don't want the airplane to go. So there are uh, warning systems on board airplanes today that say, you know, you're, if you continue on this path, you're going to fly into the mountain. So you better do sure, something called, about it's called it. The, it's called the GPWS, the Ground Proximity Warning System. Right. And after the American crash in, in uh, Cali, uh, Colombia, we went to the Enhanced System, which and, 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 and Airbus has really been ahead in some, some areas. Airbus builds its airplanes to say, uh, okay, we're going to, you, you can't roll it over. We're going to do things, uh, build things in that prevent the pilot from doing things that we just don't think are, are a good idea. And, and one of these could be, um, hey, you can't fly it in the mountain, you can't fly it in the ocean, you, you know, uh, you can't fly it into a building. Um, we're going to do things, set up the airplane so the airplane itself will take, take over if the pilot is doing something untoward. And no sooner moment than right now to do that, especially considering what happened with German wings. But, you know, we, we talk about the, Let's go back to Malaysian Air for a second. I mean, the technology does exist and has existed for a while, even dating back to Air France Flight 447 for 24-7 live streaming of voice and data, let's say up to the cloud, so that you always have some sort of data collection that doesn't depend on 1940s technology known as the black box. Yeah, that's right. And there are now flight tracking firms that uh, when, when planes are over land and in, in, uh, in communication, the plane's broadcasting a signal that these firms are picking up and actually providing information to, to uh, in, in the case of the German wings crash, um, a flight tracking firm provided crucial information long before the, the airline or, or the regulators. Um, so the, the technology is certainly there. Um, as we talked about, it, it's, you know, there are the blind spots that we have to deal with. Um, and I think uh, Nav Canada and uh, and others are um, uh, really rolling out a satellite system that'll take care of, of a lot of that. 
Um, and so we will get to the point where um, we ought to be able to know where every plane is at every moment. Well, not a moment too soon. You know, the airline industry as a whole looked at, uh, at these sort of instances as one-offs and not worthy of investing the money for the technology that already existed. I think now they can't look at it anymore as a one-off. They don't have a choice. They've got to do it. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Our next guest probably has talk about speaking from personal experience uh, probably has the distinction no, no I, I take that back he doesn't probably have it he does have the distinction of being the only person i know who was involved in a mid-air collision over brazil not only survived uh but can talk about it in ways that few people can um, he was writing at the time for the New York Times uh, and was on a delivery flight of a brand new airplane, uh, which I'll let him tell the story. Joe Sharkey, welcome back to the show. Hi, Peter. Oh, down memory lane with that horrendous uh, incident. That was, gosh, it was eight and a half years ago now. And I was on, as you said, I was on a, um, a brand new uh, business jet. I was riding, basically going along for the ride. There were, <clears throat> there were seven of us, including two pilots. And in the middle of the Amazon, at 37,000 feet, and I mean literally in the middle of the Amazon, we, boom, we, um, we collided with a, seven, a Brazilian 737, which went down with the loss of, horrific loss of 154 people. We flew on with a broken, a broken wing and, a, and, a, and a, uh, you know, a banged up stabilizer for 25 minutes, figuring we were cooked. And then at the last, kind of the last minute, a, um, a, a landing strip uh, turned up in the middle of the, the jungle, and we put down. So, I mean, the the weird thing to me is um, that I have never been able to get my head around the fact that I'm here, and 154 people were not are not here, and you know it was just a matter of blind luck. But I'll tell you, I mean, to this day. When I'm on an airplane, I do always make sure that I know where the exits are. You know, but at 37,000 feet, knowing where the exits are probably wouldn't have helped you other than the fact that by a few inches, we're not even taking feet, by a yeah. few inches, you're talking to me now. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and you're right. Yeah, the exits would have, would have been irrelevant at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, it has the, the, uh, the, the result of focusing the attention. I'll tell you, <laughs> when you look out and you see part of the wing is gone and you think, what just happened? Because we didn't know, you know, as you know, uh, you don't see it because the closing speed is so enormously fast. It's a thousand miles an hour closing, closing speed. Even the pilots don't see the other plane coming. It, there's a lot of sky out there and, and it, boom, all of a sudden, uh, you know, there, there it is. And, and, uh, uh, it went down immediately. The, the 737 went down immediately, uh, its wing was chopped off, so it was a it was a horrific accident. Um, I don't know that I have any expertise in in uh, aviation safety, except that I am enormously respectful. Number one of uh, of the people who ensure aviation safety, the, the flight crews, 
And number two, I'm to you know always, always aware of how lucky I am. Right, but you know there are some lessons that were learned about this particular incident, mm-hmm. which I wish I don't know if they've actually been applied because, at the altitude and location where that collision happened, it was sort of like no man's land Correct. in terms of aviation tracking, in terms of radar coverage, in terms of communication between not only pilots in the ground but pilots and pilots. Exactly, and I got in 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 a, in a bit of a jam with the uh, the Brazilian authorities. When I reported that right after you know this happened, uh, there, I reported that there you know it's well known that there are dead zones in that. I don't know if there still are, but there were then dead zones in that part of the uh, of, of the uh, the Amazon where radio communications are not um, they don't work. Uh, radar is wonky at best, and um, if you have two planes that are that are coming at each other at 500 miles an hour each at the same altitude in you know opposing directions your last uh, your last hope is the uh, is the collision control um, alert which did not work on the plane that I was on so you know a, right. a, a series of things happen to uh, uh, it's always more than one thing but um, all, all right, those so things happen what you're talking about is what you're talking about is the TCAS system collision the avoidance TCAS, system right. in both and both planes have to have it on and both planes have to have it working and you asked about the dead zones in, in Brazil. Guess what? They're still there because Air France Flight 447 was essentially <laughs> over a dead zone going right. between Brazil and France when uh, when we lost it. All right. Well, you know, the Brazilians, uh, the authorities got very, very emotional over this. And um, I was I was like public enemy number one for a long time in Brazil uh, because I was the only one of the survivors who could, who could talk about it, who could write about it or talk about it. The others were all... Constrained by um, by legal uh, uh, requirements, uh, I was really on the hot seat over the fact that I talked about the uh, you know the dead zones, the, uh, the 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 poor communication, you know the series of things that happen when uh, you know when something catastrophic like this happens. It's never just one thing; it's always a couple of things that happen. And uh, the Brazilians are to this day they they uh, they, they denounce me for uh, uh, you know for having reported that, but. Well, so, you know, you we were not the only person on the hot seat, Joe. You had the two pilots of your plane who I believe were were uh, detained. Uh, they were detained for three. They were ultimately convicted of. Um, uh, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, they were convicted of a crime, um, and that's still on appeal. I was convicted of. This is really goofy, but. Uh, there, there's a law, a, a law in Brazil that if you if you insult the honor of Brazil, you're uh, you're uh, you're you know you're you're guilty. And I was convicted of insulting the honor of Brazil by um, not only by what I reported, but in the in the midst of all the commotion that the emotional commotion that ensued, there were all kinds of crazy things flying back and forth in online comments that somehow were ascribed to me that were not. But you know that got really, really hairy, and it's not—it hasn't played out yet. The pilots are still on appeal, and I'm still dealing with you know with parts of that. So it's almost—it's almost nine years later, and you know sure. that that part of it uh, continues. It's just—it was just well, you know, well, that the pilots was the worst ride still... I ever took, Peter. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but yeah. but the pilots may still be on appeal, but they're out of they're out of Brazil. They're back in the U.S. They're out of Brazil, and as am I, you know. But the pilots are, you know, of course, in die, you know, in much more. Um, uh, much deeper uh, 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 jam than I than I than I was, and uh, it took that they were held. I think it was 
three months that they were held without charge in Brazil. It got really, really strange. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a, a horrific. But, you know, again, we're all alive. You know, seven of us are alive, and, you know, we can't really uh, forget the fact that 154 people are not, you know. Terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a question of, of the lessons that we've learned from that incident. It's whether or not we've applied those lessons and whether or yeah. not they fix those dead zones, or it's just like cowboy and Indian country. You know, the, the old aviation term of see and be seen might work if you're flying on, on, on a small Cessna at 110 miles an hour. It doesn't work really well when you're at 500 miles an hour. Exactly. Exactly. And air traffic control, there was a big problem with air traffic control at that time in Brazil. I think that's been, I think it's been addressed. I don't know. I haven't followed this as closely uh, in, in recent years. But air traffic control was in chaos at that time in Brazil. It was run by the military. And, uh, it, you know, there were several incidents that were, that were rather uh, dire in Brazil uh, at that time uh, with, air tra- with, uh, with malfeasance and air traffic control. And now I'm going to get back in trouble with the Brazilians again. But <laughs> there we well, have it. Well, that's okay. But, but having <laughs> gone through what you've gone through, <laughs> right. and even though it was eight and a half years ago, yeah. um, I mean, there have to have been some, you know, resulting uh, you know, emotional scars at, at least. Has that stopped you from getting on another airplane? No, no, not at all. I mean, you know, not to be glib, but I figured, what are the odds? I'll tell you one thing that I, that I do uh, note all the time. You know how business tra- travelers, heavy travelers, get together and they talk about, oh, I was delayed for 12 hours and, you know, wherever. And you have those conversations, say, at a, you know, a restaurant or an airport or a, a hotel lounge or something. I've learned not to mention my, my particular horror story because it's a buzzkill, and it stops conversation, and that becomes the topic of conversation for the night. And it's like, oh, gosh, you know, let's, let's, have, let's have fun rather than, you know, than dredge this all up again. So, you know, I've, I've learned. Well, I hope I haven't dredged too deeply, but I'm very appreciative of the fact that you have talked about it. Well, thank because... you. I, no, absolutely. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. 
but for the detectives on the scene. There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.